Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 142 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the UN slash Republic of Congo episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that after examining the application of the Republic of the Congo for membership in the United Nations... The council recommended to the General Assembly that the Republic of the Congo be admitted to the United Nations in the United Nations Security Council Resolution 142. Yes, and with that very, very belabored explanation of 142 tonight, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us from his own personal cubicle in Hollywood that looks exactly like an electronics shop in a department store in Tokyo in 1946, mirroring that of Sony. It would be... Tim! Now, how exactly does my, uh, does my desk area look? Go into detail. I... I... Whatever you want to conjure in your mind of what you would think that an electronic shop in a department store building in Tokyo in 1946 would I imagine look like. a lot of white and a lot of plastics and smooth surfaces, not a lot of rigidness, not a lot of jagged edges, just basically not a lot of squares. I'm, it's probably not even a desk. It's probably a, a plastic slab of some sort that maybe glows in the dark. I, I don't know. I wouldn't do that, personally. It's your cubicle, bro. <laughs> Matt, I, I'm sorry, but there's something that I've been wanting to ask you about for the past couple days. If that's okay, mm-hmm. if I can go ahead and, and, and bring this to the attention of all those, or our favorite listener, who is hopefully listening this week. Because this is a, this is a topic, a subject, that baffles the minds of many men who have confronted this particular thing with their significant other at some point in their lives well my goodness with a build-up like that i don't know how i could say no please uh ask away sir bachelorette parties matt what do you think about bachelorette parties not not um, like you attending I, them but like i think they're they are i think that they are the counterpart to the bachelor party uh, i guess uh, i don't know um they're sociologically speaking i guess that they are considered kind of like a rite of passage but um outside of that don't really care one way or the other i think if you want to have one hey more power to you and if you don't, then that's okay, too. Well, that was the very literal answer you could have given us, which is good, which is fine. I failed on my part for, uh, even with the build-up, I guess, I I failed. (laughs) So the girlfriend went to a bachelorette party uh, this past weekend, and I think in her mind, it was supposed to go one way, but then you throw in one person that wants to, like, spice things up a bit, 
it's kind of like a slippery slope from there. First, you're eating cupcakes, then you're drinking frothy beer out of a penis-shaped cup. I'm not saying that actually happens. Yeah, it's still, still not that bad. Sounds like, sounds like pretty standard-level debauchery for a bachelorette party. I mean, I guess as long as you're not drinking them out of an actual penis, then I think we're still okay at this point. Yeah, that is true. That is true. And I'm not saying that necessarily happened. I mean, it's... Well, at least not that you were told. And that is true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like one, you know, you throw in a couple sour grapes and it's a slippery slope from there with bachelor parties. Or, I mean, I guess even bachelor parties. But I think with bachelor parties, usually all the guys are kind of on the same level with things, you know? So... Let's just say that, so your wife goes to a bachelorette party and she thinks, okay, well, it's going to be a dinner. You know, we're going to go out to dinner. We're going to come back and drink some wine, drink a lot of wine. There's those little innocent little penis-shaped straws that, ooh, for some reason it's a novelty thing to do on your bachelorette party. Or penis-shaped cupcakes even. I mean, that's very, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel of risque when it comes to that. But then again, you have those sour grapes that want to throw in the... Oh, yeah, drink some froth out between my legs. Pretend it's a penis. It's going to be sexy. But it's in public at a bar, at a sports bar, in front of other, you know, in front of dudes who happen to have their iPads and their phones out, obviously taking video of this stuff going on. My significant other did not partake in that, but other people did. Again, that you were told of, anyway. I saw pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you saw, you, sure, you saw some I saw, pictures. That is uh, true. You know. I saw some <laughs> pictures. No, I happen to know uh, your girlfriend, and I and I would definitely be in your camp on that one, that there would not be pictures of her in this. A- at least she would be smart stuff. enough not to have them posted on any form of website. <laughs> but so, I mean, that kind of leads into to all this. So say, like, your wife goes out, or your girlfriend, or whoever goes out, to one, and it's kind of like a slippery slope, you know, first this happens, and then, you know, some other girls are, you know, making out with dudes, you know, they're getting guys to, like, show their asses, and, you know, it all falls also into that stupid, like, let's play these bachelorette games, which, they're innocent, until you have, like, five Patron shots, and then it becomes, you know, what becomes, like, asking a stranger for a uh, piggyback ride, turns into, let's go hump in the grass, or... The parking lot, mm. or just kind of where it depends on where you're at, or, the, or both, sure. And, and then, like the really the, the stupidity that comes out of that, the stupidity is why would you not pay attention to your surroundings and make sure nobody is either taking a picture or videoing it or, or recording it on their phones? Uh, I think this is where the alcohol generally comes in. You, you get drunk enough and you stop thinking about that I've kind of stuff. I've never had that issue with myself. Because because you, you, you're, you're already out of the realm of things that I would not normally do, even after having been drinking. We've now entered the social construct of it's wild, it's crazy, it's a last night out kind of a thing uh, for the bachelorette so to speak or whatever for the you know and and you put that so now everybody's being ultra wild and crazy to try and create the ultimate bachelorette party experience and of course guys are guilty too and then you so you put all that on top of the fact that now you are drunk and you forget that people would be potentially filming this so that's that's kind of how that happens (laughs) 
<laughs> get this the person recording this stuff was standing mm-hmm. three feet away and he was recording it on an iPad. And he was one of, uh, I mean, I mean, there was nobody there. There were like four dudes and the rest were the girls a part of the bachelorette party. That's kind of how obvious it was. And yet they, you know, the the stuff carried on. And see, and to me right there, I think that guy's a douchebag. I personally think that that guy's a douchebag. And here's why I think that that guy is a douchebag. Because he's fucking recording video on an iPad. Dude, seriously. <laughs> I, I get that iPads are cool and everything. I have a tablet. It's, they're, they're great. But you, the, the camera isn't just for holding out in front of people. That's really annoying. That, that's just so annoying. It's you should so be recording rude. this stuff at least secretly. Your, at least you your know, phone. Like, No, just, just use your phone. I mean, I don't care if you're secret or not about it. Just use your phone. It's rude. You're blocking everybody's view when you put that fucking iPad. So what's worse, away. recording a concert on your iPad or recording women doing crazy things at a bachelorette party on their iPad? Mm, neither, neither. I think vertical video is probably the worst transgression that you can make in recording. Well, there you go. I mean, I think I think all my worries of, <laughs> or not all my worries, but all my, it's because again, I have nothing to worry about because obviously she didn't do anything. I know that for a fact. It's more of an annoyance, you know, how... All, all this stuff happens because I mean I know dudes are dudes are douchebags and assholes and they do stupid stuff also. I know, but it's not about. I, I, again, I, I even before the advent of the cell phone, we we had the disposable camera, we've had photography, and we've had people taking stupid pictures for a long, long time. And I think that if you are putting yourself in that position, because you didn't start off the night drunk, now did you? I mean, at some point you were, theoretically, at some point you were sober. Uh, I'm sure, I guess there are people who do live in that constant state of drunkenness, so what have you. But, you know, should should, should people just be being filming this stuff for the sake of filming? Of course not. It's kind of a, it's a bit of an asshole thing to do, but it's also the culture we live in and you know that going in and yet you still get drunk and you still decide to do all of these crazy things. Um, and, and the girls are recording it too, which is, it's just crazy. Oh God, yeah. It's so, so dumb. And see, and so now <laughs> you kind of creating the bystander effect because the guy with the iPad's like, oh, well, these girls are recording it. I may yeah. as well record it too. But it's just, uh, I think, like with bachelor parties, even the wild ones where the guys are, you know, are doing whatever, they're not wanting to capture the moment of, you know. Oh well, I think this is a conversation that can go on I literally just... for a long time, man. <laughs> I think all people are stupid, or I'm not all people. I think that a lot of people are stupid when it comes to recording debauchery of all shapes and sizes and of all occasions. And there are just as many idiot guys out there who would record their buddy getting, uh, who would record their, their, you know, um, their buddy who is the groom to be getting the blowjob from the stripper because they're all drunk and they think it's hilarious. Um, just as there are women who would, uh, you were very confident in saying that, so I think you might video have the, a video out there. Oh, the the bride to be blowing the male stripper because they think it's hilarious, and you know, the joke being that you know she's never going to have a cock that big. So is that head. how you and your wife work through any problems? Like you're, oh, remember that time when? Yes, yes. Whenever we're having problems, we just have impromptu bachelor and bachelorette parties. 
all over again. We're going to renew our vows, but first... So, yeah. Well, on that note, shall I get to just mention the news? Well, you know what's funny about the news of the awesome? My Internet Explorer stopped Ooh, working. news of the awesome. <laughs> yeah. so, sounds like you used Internet Explorer. That's the problem. <laughs> Ah, I'm sorry. Oh, Matthias. Friends don't... It's my fault. Friends don't let friends use Internet Explorer. <laughs> at, at least you weren't recording... Oh, actually, I, well, you are recording it. <laughs> at least I wasn't videoing it, right? So we could just pretend it was a bit. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yes. <laughs> oh, of course not, Matt. Uh, that, was, that was Firefox crashed. <laughs> Hilarious. Hang on. It is working. It's getting there. All right, so this news... Of the awesomeness that I wanted to get to. Matt, have you ever sat on the toilet and thought, God, it'd be really cool if really, like, I'm sitting upon an underground city that's, like, right underneath me that, you know, for some reason, during ancient times, like, somebody built something and it collapsed. And over over time, you know, like, they built this house or apartment on top of it and I'm actually you know, shitting on top of an underground temple or something, man. And be in like suddenly as you're thinking about that, you fall through and all of a sudden you're, oh shit, you know, I'm I'm in a temple. I'm in that very same temple. Let me I can explore this stuff. When I mean, have you ever had that thought or dreamt about it? Either sleeping no, or not maybe not in that way, because if that were the case, I'd be covered in my own shit that I'd been shitting on top of this temple for a long time. <laughs> According to ancientorigins.net, man intent on fixing toilet uncovers century-old subterranean world beneath his basement. That is right, and uh, I uh, give props for this article to my uh, buddy, Andrew Robinson, or Andy Robinson. He uh, pointed me, he directed me towards this one. He thinks this would make a good movie. A good buddy uh, comedy movie, and I kind of think so as well. An Italian man's dreams to open a modest restaurant became an archaeological, art, archaeological, an archaeological obsession when he broke ground in order to repair a faulty toilet. The underground world filled with centuries of history he found beneath his building would dominate his life for more than a decade. In 2000, Luciano Fagiano, Fagiano face plumbing and sewage issues on the property he had purchased in order to start a trattoria, a casual eating establishment, in Lecce, Italy. Figuring it would be a quick fix, he opted to find and repair the trouble himself. With the help of his two older sons, digging beneath the building, the family soon discovered a subterranean world, quote, tracing back before the birth of Jesus, a Mesopian tomb, a Roman granary, a Francescan chapel, and even etchings from the Knights Templar. His trattoria instead became a museum where relics still turn up today, in quote, writes an article in the New York Times. And I'll just end that there. Yes, while a man was fixing a toilet, he uncovers a centuries-old subterranean world underneath his basement. How about that, Matt? Doesn't that wow. sound like a movie just waiting to be made? Maybe, I mean, maybe we can throw in my version of taking a big old dump and you break something and, you know, it kind of leads to you finding this world. Um, it, 
it, I mean, it really, it's fascinating. I mean, we're getting Mesopotamian stuff, ancient Roman stuff and everything. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, there are pictures too. That is pretty darn spiffy. All right. Well, now that we have definitely killed some serious time here. We really did. I mean, we did. We, we like, this is like torture porn version of killing time. It wasn't, the time wasn't just killed. I did it. Thanks to Tim, time has been, I hope you're like, you know, really needing time to be wasted while listening to this. Oh, yeah. man. Wow. Yeah, th- th- I'm sure they were thinking to themselves, surely they can't waste 18 minutes this week. Surely it can't be done. And yet it could. Yeah. And yet yeah. it could. If I had to take an 18-minute dump, I wouldn't want to listen to the show to pass the time. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, that's, the, that's like the perfect thing to pass the time with, right? You know, well, we can read shit for, about ancient... shit while you take your shit. I mean, that, yeah. That's true. Yeah, 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 I guess. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> so, how about we do some... Let's do some news. What do you say? Sounds good. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. <laughs> and first up from me, from blogs.indywire.com by way of Kevin Jaggernauth. Uh, this is, of course, the playlist. Jason Bateman admits nobody actually wanted a sequel to Horrible Bosses. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, let me just... Um, let, let's, let's just do this. <clears throat> I'm just going to read three quotes from this article. Because I think this is pretty much the heart of the whole thing. <clears throat> All of these are quotes... From Jason Bateman, from this article. Quote, A lot of people saw the first one, but there are plenty of films that made a lot of money where no one is interested in seeing another one. End quote. Quote, The first one was funny. The first one put up some money. The second one was garbage as far as box office goes. Who knows if it was on the merits or when they released it, but it did not do any money. End quote. Finally, Quote, Oh yeah, that's a paycheck for everyone. Everyone's getting paid. It's a freebie. <laughs> End quote. Well said, Mr. Bateman, and I agree. You did it for the money. It sucked, and it wasn't necessary. What do you got for us, Tim? Well, I will say that what I like about Jason Bateman is that he does kind of admit when he had fucked up. <laughs> or even when I'll other give him people props fucked for up. admitting it, but still... I mean, how succinct can you be? Yeah, I did it for the money. Didn't need to be made. And it was terrible. (laughs) Did you even see Horrible Bosses 2? I did. I did. I watched it at DOD or something a while back. But yeah. And it's not good. Um, Though Christopher Pine is really interesting in it, I was surprised Christoph Waltz not so much. Really? I was truly surprised. Yeah, not so much. He didn't play his stereotypical villain in the movie? No, it was different. I mean, it really was. It was weird. It was different. So I wasn't as impressed with his character, I guess. Maybe his acting was still good, but the character was not so much. Yeah. My computer is frozen, so what What do you have, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, next up... <laughs> 
from NewYorkDailyNews.com. Uh, by way of Lori Hanna, iconic house from cult classic The Goonies is now closed to fans. That's right, folks. Fans of cult classic The Goonies have been told to truffle shuffle off. The owner of the iconic house where the movie was shot has been overwhelmed by thousands of visiting fans keen to catch a glimpse of the property. Now the house in Astoria, Oregon is covered in blue tarps and a sign posted outside tells visitors it's off limits. The homeowner is Sandy Preston, according to the Daily Astorian. A stern sign posted outside the home reads, quote, Imagine that you buy a house, fix it up, spend money, time, and love. Then the city of Astoria encourages hundreds of thousands of people to come and stand in front and view it. This driveway, maintained by homeowners, sees 1,000 plus people every day. Most are kind, fun, and welcome, but many are not. End quote there. So basically, uh, this lady is tired of, the, the, the homeowner was basically tired of people coming up. She, she said that while they're, again, like the quote said, most of the people were friendly. A lot of people weren't, though. And there were people who were coming up at all hours of the day and night. And they'd be drunk and they would, like, litter and throw cigarette butts, leave bottles and stuff. She just got tired of it. And it's um, kind of sad because... The um, the house actually generates approximately $3 million for Astoria's economy because people come literally to see the house and go to the filming locations and everything like that. And so that's money spent in the town. <sighs> so kind of sad. What do you think there, Tim? I, I personally, I think she has a right if people are not, especially since people, it seems, are not respecting the property and or I would love to know uh, the age of these fans because this is something that like the tourism of that house or the people checking out that house apparently has like boomed within the past couple years so if I wonder if they're just younger kids that were just kind of turned on to the movie by their parents or something like that they uh, they are attributing it to the the uh, recent surge in interest fueled by social media so I guess they are visitors of all ages. And then they put like a tarp over it or something like that? Like they covered it with a tarp? Yes, yes, they have covered it. Yes, they've covered the whole front of the house with tarps. Cute. All right, Matt, you're doing great. Keep yeah. on going, buddy. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see here. This is a, a real quick one then. We'll see if we can do a real quick one. Uh, Vin Diesel actually posted this to um, Instagram or I believe, yes, just a, just about a day ago. He posted this to his own Instagram. It says, While I was filming Triple X, guys on set called me Air Diesel. The time to return has come. Filming starts December in the Philippines. Hashtag, I live for this shit. So, apparently... This is Vin Diesel's way of announcing that there will be a third Triple X movie. I, for one, was a big fan of the first one. Knew the second one was going to be a terrible shitstorm, which it was. Uh, and have now decided to just let the memories live fondly in my brain. What do you think, Tim? Is it time? Is it past time? Should we leave it alone? Do you think 
at this point it's a good idea at all what uh, i don't know i just think move on i mean agree we i i know i was one that really wasn't all gung-ho about the first one either in fact i just really wasn't sure why everybody loved it so much because it was it was it's i mean it was directed it was by a Rob fun Cohen. it was a really fun take on like uh, uh on the like the bond on james bond yeah. you know it was it was it was a really fun sexy uh fast and furious spin-off of like james bond so i don't know i'm 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 digging it. If you know, if we can have a Kingsman, we surely there's room in the world for something like Triple X. Oh yeah, then there will definitely be a sequel to Kingsman <laughs> as well. And now there's been two sequels to Triple X. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how how we doing? Are, are we unfrozen now? Is your is your computer busting out like Elsa singing "Let It Go" yet, or what's up? Uh, no. Um. All right. Well, yeah, you, you're doing do... good. Keep on. No, I'm. This is okay. this is Matt news time. <laughs> I'm gonna wrap up my news here, and then if worse comes to worse, you can just drop a couple of news stories in after we record, so that you know we're not just doing silly stuff anymore. Uh, let's see here from Variety.com by way of Marianne Zumberge. Colin Trevorrow's comments on lack of female blockbuster directors draw criticism. You heard right, folks. Director Colin Trevorrow has come under fire for sharing his opinions about the gender imbalance among directors of big-budget studios. Um, all right. So this is... Th- basically, here's his opinion. Uh, I think is fair to say. Now, it's, it's lengthy... So I am the the sum up here, um, the sum up that they give in the article is, uh, while concise, definitely gets to the heart of it. However, it is more elaborate, and you are welcome to. I, and they do have a picture of it here in the article or a screen cap, so you're welcome to take a look at the entire thing. But I'm not going to read his entire tweet. He says, "Quote." I want to believe that a filmmaker with both the desire and ability to make a studio blockbuster will be given an opportunity to make their case. I stress desire because I honestly think that's a part of the issue. Many of the top female directors in our industry are not interested in doing a piece of studio business for its own sake. These filmmakers have clear voices and stories to tell that don't necessarily involve superheroes or spaceships or dinosaurs, end quote. So he's being attacked for that by saying, but because they're, they're ostensibly trying to say that he's brushing off any kind of um, lack of female directors, high-powered directors in, in Hollywood uh, by trying to say that, that the issue doesn't exist. And that's not what he's saying at all. He, what he is saying is, is that, quite frankly, he, it, it reads to me, and especially as you read the entirety of the tweet, that it's not just a simple black and white issue. And he actually, in his personal experience and from what he has dealt with and the people that he knows... Um, and I've got to say that he probably has a little bit more inside knowledge than anybody else that would be uh, getting upset at him about it. 
is that to him from his perspective from what he has seen from what he has seen going on a lot of female directors are not quote unquote selling out they don't want to take a big paycheck just to direct something about Jurassic you know like Jurassic World they have a clear artistic vision they're not going to sell out they want to tell the stories that they want to tell their way um, and I think that's very admirable. I don't know that that necessarily is going to, um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination. Could he be mistaken? Absolutely. Um, but when he's saying that part of the issue or a big part of this issue is something that's not being talked about and he is addressing what is not being talked about i don't think he is doing any kind of disservice to that i think he is actually trying to show the strength that female directors have in that they want what they want and they're willing to fight for the projects that they want in the way that they want to be able to complete them so they deal with in many cases, independent studios, smaller uh, smaller production houses and things of that nature, so that their vision comes out their way. And you get a lot of great storytelling done in that medium. That's kind of what he's getting at, in my opinion. That's how it reads to me. But people are still attacking him over this. And Io's, I'm really just kind of blown away because he keeps trying to say... I'm not saying that there isn't a problem. I'm saying that it's not a simple problem and that, quite frankly, I think he has a huge amount of respect for female directors who don't compromise where other people would just to get the chance at a bigger name. So, I don't know, Tim. Do, are, have you followed this story at all? Um, Honestly, not really. I actually just read about I read the headline for it, uh, for today. And yeah, I think it's I mean, I think he's right uh, about what he's saying. I mean, I think it's kind of stupid that he's kind of get getting hammered for it. I agree. So I agree with you, man. <laughs> so at any rate, OK, cool. Well, uh, I think that's my news. That That's all I got, sir. We will just move on to our next segment, which this week happens to be... Furry Square! And this week's Three Squared is one that I... Uh, was very excited about. I I didn't think, I mean, when we kind of just came up with it <laughs> really quickly, I didn't think I was going to have as much fun with it as we did. Or at least as I did, anyway. Um, so this week's Three Squared is uh, your favorite visual effects sequences, special effects sequences. And again, they don't have to be from the best movies ever on the history of the planet. Um, although I think they're going to be from some pretty darn good movies overall um but they're just really good special effects that have stuck with you 
in your time of watching movies. And so for me, I'm just going to do them, I guess, um, in reverse order, uh, chronological reverse chronological order um there there's no particular favorite here these are just really really good examples of special effects and visual and or visual effects that just blew my mind when i watched them uh first up is from 2006 pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest and for this is basically the entirety of this thing is davy jones I truly could not believe that this wasn't um, just like green screened, imported in. I mean, I Bill Nye was just not only was he such a great actor and such a great casting choice for this, which you know we'll go into casting later. <clears throat> the special effects of him in doing the face and all of the squid-like tentacles and everything. I just, it, they were jaw-dropping for me. And at the time, for me, truly were realistic. I simply was just jaw-dropped. Could not believe it. I, every, I, was, I found myself wanting more of this character just so I could see more of these dazzling special effects. And that's something that doesn't really happen to me anymore, especially when we get to the realm of CGI. This was just, holy crap, was amazing. I could not believe what I was looking at and consequently made this movie um, really, really good for me. And the movie itself... Um, is so-so, <laughs> but Davy Jones is amazing. Uh, next up, from 1993, we have Jurassic Park. And I'm not doing, oh, all of the special effects were, oh, or that, you know, Brachiosaur reveal. Nope, 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 nope. For me, Raptors in the Kitchen, baby. I just thought that the... The blend of the maquettes, the blend of the practical effects and the CGI, uh, the using of the puppets and the models and stuff, that raptor claw tap, tap, tapping on the stainless steel counter and everything, that was some of the best CGI. I can still right now close my eyes and picture the first time I saw that on the screen at the AMC, at the SeaTac Mall, in Federal Way, Washington, in 1993. That was just, I mean, heart palpitations and everything. I was just completely blown away. I absolutely could not, again, fathom that you could make dinosaurs that real. Granted, this was 22 years ago. Um, but holy crap. I mean, even the kid actors that they had were believable in that scene. Let me stress that scene. And I just could not get over how heart pounding and how thrill ride inducing 
the feelings were that I had when I would watch this scene. And whenever I eventually got to where I could get it on VHS and, of course, subsequently on DVD. And I mean, it's I'll, I'll just pause that and look at it and rewind that scene and get back to it and just watch that sequence unfold over and over because it's just amazing. It is truly one of the best for me examples of visual effects uh, in all of the 90s. So Matrix included for me. Finally, finally, we have from 1986... Aliens, and probably one of the best examples in the history of practical effects. We've got Ripley versus the Queen in the finale of Aliens. This was just holy shit, jaw dropping uh, effects, and especially when she gets into the big, you know, construction suit and everything, and then she's just beating the fucking piss out of this thing. And they're actually getting into a fight, and they're, you know, uh, she's using those gyro uh, arms and everything, and uh, they're going back and forth, and you've got all that those, those uh, sounds and everything. I mean, it was not just the special effects themselves, but it was the, the it was the it was the sound effects too, and it was the foley artists doing just amazing work, and you have so many different factors going into this uh, scene, and again. The the move the whole movie is fantastic. I mean, of course, we have the iconic "Game Over, Man," "Game Over." Um, you know, we've got the "Get away from her, you bitch!" You know, all those amazing iconic lines. Great stuff. Great thrill ride all the way through. But goddamn, if that finale fight wasn't some of the best fucking special effects I'd ever seen. Great imagination went into those into those suits, into the puppeteering, and everything. And you just think to yourself, iconic special effects, and just amazing special effects sequences. And, I mean, I don't see how this can't be on your list, ever, of all the great films. It should be making, this one should be making top ten lists all the time. But, man, oh man. I just want to go back and watch these movies now. Just thinking about these sequences and talking about them again, I want to sit back down. I want to sit back down and just start watching all these movies. Holy crap! That's it. Brb. Tomorrow, gonna go watch some visual effects. Anyways, so from 2006, Davy Jones, just simply all of Davy Jones, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest from 1993. Raptors in the Kitchen in Jurassic Park. And finally, from 1986, Ripley vs. Queen in Aliens. What do you got for us there, Tim? So are you saying that they should just retitle Jurassic Park Raptors in the Kitchen? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I would watch that. (laughs) Raptors in the Kitchen with Dinah. Raptors in the Kitchen with Dinah. Dead. Anyways... All right, so my three favorite film or special effects sequences from movies, I kind of chose these uh, uh, three movies that came out, or not necessarily came out, but I saw at different points of my uh, life growing up that in some way kind of influenced my way of uh, either watching movies or critiquing movies, but 
influenced by way of writing and making movies, or even like pre-visualizing uh, pre like a sequence of some kind, special I mean a, a special effects sequence. But even that can coach you in making a film. You know the best way to visualize it and all that juicy stuff and how it should come about. And the first special effects sequence in a movie that I would like to share with you that influenced me as a young tot was from Jason and the Argonauts from 1963. And the sequence that I am going to talk about is the famous skeleton fight sequence, which you all are familiar with. Well, at least if you are a movie fan, you should be familiar with this one. Again, this is from 1963. The special effects, the stop motion and whatnot, was done by the late, great Ray Harryhausen who was a pioneer for film special effects. He did all the puppetry and the stop motion. And when this movie came out, nobody saw anything like this. Like, movies have played around with having real people interact with fake things, uh, like either like cartoons, uh, say like in Mary Poppins with the penguins and you know, Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke are dancing with the penguins and whatnot. Uh, and uh, also other movies with stop motion animation using clay uh, figures or puppets and mixing that, superimposing that with humans. But never have you seen a movie where a human is fighting a skeleton, let alone all out fight scene where they're, you know, they're jumping over each other. They're, uh, they're, they're slicing each other up. They're coming into contact with one another and the fluid and the motions is just choreographed so well that when the movie came out, even if you're a kid watching it and you quite don't know, you know, your, your imagination is still running rampant. You actually, in a way, believe what you're seeing on the screen or maybe not really believing, but there's still that thought of how did they do that? Cause it's so well done for its time. For those of you who remember uh, when Matt and I were talking about the documentary Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Man, uh, I think that's what it was called. It's a documentary on Ray ha Harryhausen that is or was, I think it still is on uh, Netflix right now. But he went into detail about the making of Jason and the Argonauts and especially that fight scene with the skeletons. Um and pretty much what happened, which is pretty amazing, is that the actors, uh, those in the movie itself, rehearsed with stuntmen who were taking the part of the skeleton, you know. And so they would rehearse the scene and going through all the motions as what the, you know, the skeletons were doing, as well as, you know, the actors, you know, basically memorizing what motions they have to do. And when it was time to really shoot the scene, they got rid of the stuntmen and the actors had to replicate or basically shadow box the exact same movements. And so they were doing this while Ray Harryhausen was in his studio doing all the stop motion. And then later on, they superimposed that stop motion into the movie itself. And it matches up wonderfully. I mean, just think about how that process itself, not just the process of Ray Harryhausen and his assistant having to meticulously move every appendage and pay attention to so much detail in the movement of the skeletons that that, I mean, that takes hours, that takes days to do just one second of footage, let alone having to replicate the movement and match it up exactly so that it'll look like the humans are really fighting the skeletons. And it's just beautiful and mind-boggling. And to this day, if you watch it, it is a special effect sequence that you cannot ever forget for the rest of your life. In the second film, from 1989, James Cameron's classic, 
The Abyss. And the movie, or in the sequence that I am talking about with this one, is another well-known and famous shot. But a lot of people don't realize that this, it was a pioneer for this type of special effect. And I am talking about the suspended water effect when they're in the, in the sub, in the big ship underwater, and the alien liquid comes out of the pool, and it's floating in the air and it's cruising all through the ship until it comes face to face with Ed Harrison and in the liquid the suspended liquid takes on his face and it also takes on his ex-wife's face just you haven't seen anything like that ever you haven't seen 3D animation like that in in a, in a movie before that and actually James Cameron would play around with that same 3D uh liquid with the liquid metal that would come about in a couple years when he ends up making Terminator 2 Judgment Day. This special effect, this whole sequence, took ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, seven months to complete. That is crazy. In fact, they had to suspend the release of the movie to accommodate all the time that it took them to create those special effect shots. And in fact, James Cameron actually wanted to take a page out of Ray Harryhausen's book and do everything with, uh, with, with models and clay and do stop-motion animation, but then just add a glistening water-type reflection effect to that stop-motion. And you know what? It wouldn't look the same as it does now. With this early CGI, though it is early CGI, it is groundbreaking CGI. And even today, it doesn't quite compare to what we have now, but you can still revel in the marvel that it was in its time. All the care and all the time that they put into that one shot was just totally worth it. And it was just absolutely beautiful. And it was fluid. It must have been an amazing sight to see watching this at the movie theater when the movie first came out. I wasn't exposed to it until like 93 when I was about five years old. And I remember the first time watching this on VHS at my grandfather's house. And I was blown away by that. I couldn't imagine, I couldn't fathom the idea of suspended liquid moving, or actually just suspended liquid, period, especially moving through my house or through a ship or anything like that. And it's just absolutely beautiful. And again, it took ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, seven months to create that specific water effect. And my third and final special effects sequence is something from 2005. And uh, and this sequence would be found in Steven Spielberg's highly underrated War of the Worlds. The movie isn't absolutely spectacular, but the special effects that went into that movie are quite spectacular. The movie is pretty intimate to where all the action revolves around a handful of characters, and some of the really tense, suspenseful moments takes place within confined quarters. Except when the mayhem first starts and Tom Cruise has to get back to his family, get his family into a minivan or into a van, and they have to haul ass out of town to get to the country, where eventually they run into a psychotic Tim Robbins. But during that hurried, tense car chase against aliens, or just a car chase against uh, mass destruction, the aliens blow up a giant freeway overpass. And in that sequence, you're looking at Tom Cruise's car, Tom Cruise's van, you know, full head on, you have the entire car in frame. And behind him, you have, it's a it's a wide shot, so you have traffic all around you, you have people running on the sidewalks, you have these old, really cool houses lining the streets, and behind that, you see that freeway overpass, and then, and the freeway overpass just lunges 
towards the pedestrians and towards Tom Cruise's car as it's trying to sail down the street, avoiding debris, avoiding other cars, and avoiding people. Oh, man, it's, it's just an amazing sight, and especially for a film that was post-9-11. It was absolutely jaw-dropping and pretty much awe-inspiring, if I do say so myself, because you've never really seen anything executed in such a way that looked so goddamn real. And the movie was criticized for spending so much money on special effects, a lot of people didn't understand what all the special effects went into. Watch that first big invasion scene, and you will know exactly what that money went to. And I hopefully, hopefully now, after watching this movie 10 years after it originally came out, you will appreciate those particular scenes because it is amazing just kind of that bridge and then it like crashes into the homes and the homes disintegrate a big fireball you know just like bursts towards the screen overpowering all these people and you know incinerating them death is everywhere but yet tom cruise and his kids in that van are still able there's they they manage to make their way to safety just barely and it is absolutely jaw-dropping how they were able to accomplish that uh, huge set piece within that film. So again, my three films are Jason and the Argonauts, the skeleton fight scene in 1963, The Abyss, the suspended water scene from 1989, and then finally the giant invasion freeway overpass collapsing scene from War of the Worlds, which came out in 2005. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, that does bring us to the close of yet another Three Squared. Next week, we're going to be doing a masterpiece discussion on where have all the cheery teen movies gone? You know, think about, like, the Bring It On movies and all that kind of stuff. Where have all the cheery teen movies gone? So that's what we're going to be doing for next week. It's our discussion. Um... I guess with nothing else that leaves us with the movie. And this week's movies are The Gift, uh, the 2015. Uh, version of the film well i guess not version but the 2015 film because there's a lot of films called the gift it's a 2015 thriller uh a most wanted man and we actually called this uh, a dangerous man last week so we do apologize for that we just got our wires crossed and uh, (laughs) we're thinking of something that didn't exist i guess a Most Wanted Man, and then finally Casting By, the documentary. Um, where would you like to start there, Tim? How about A Most Wanted Man? A Most Wanted Man. All right. Let's see here. So, A Most Wanted Man, 2014 British espionage thriller film. It is based on a novel of the same name by John Le Carré. Um, it's directed by Anton Corbin and was starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Rachel McAdams, Willem Dafoe, Robin Wright, uh, and pretty much those are the only people that you will have heard of in this movie. Um, this is basically about a young man, he's a political refugee from Chechnya, who happened to have a, v- a very bad 
Russian dad. He is a devout Muslim who finds him, who finds himself in Hamburg. Um, I'm sorry, not Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany. To basically kind of settle his father's estate, more or less. Um, unfortunately, due to his political refugee status, due to where he came from, which happens to be Russia, um, and his and due to his father and his faith, he is actually looked at as a potential terrorist and someone who is not there for anything less than nefarious purposes. Uh, Q. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays Gunther Bachmann, a kind of a counter-terrorism unit, an off-the-books um, counter-terrorism unit uh, director, who works with the German government. He is kind of a, 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 a kind of a black ops, you know, spec ops offshoot of the German government. Um, whose sole purpose in life, he, he and his team, are there to identify threats and get these threats to, to work with them and subsequently the government um, and inform so that they can kind of, you know, catch bigger fish. The, the whole movie re- revolves around Gunther's machinations regarding... Isa, the political refugee from Chechnya, and the interactions that happen with Isa and his lawyer, played by uh, Rachel McAdams, and the banker who is tied to both his own father and Isa's dad, <clears throat> and that and is played by Willem Dafoe, and then how this all kind of plays out with international with it's international espionage happening um pissing matches between different branches of governments and everything like that um and then of course one young man's life hanging kind of in the balance more or less this movie uh when i when i read what it was about and everything i was kind of like eh. and then of course it, you know this was the actual last film to be released before Philip Seymour Hoffman's very untimely death. Um, And so it got some increased press from that. This movie is one of the best acted movies I have ever seen. This is truly where a good story is awesome and good writing is great. And when you have a very competent director who understands exactly what he needs to get from the characters to pull off the story that is being told all well and good and all good from those angles but where this movie really shines is in the acting all of these people who come in with these characters are really 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 good at their jobs and they're really good at what they do and you empathize with who you need to empathize with you sympathize who you need to sympathize with you love who you love and you hate who you hate and it's because these actors do such a good job of bringing these characters to life that being said one thing really bothered me about this and i and i am not trying to slam any of these actors because i know i can't do this to save my life it's the accents um, I, I, I didn't buy them. 
Okay, I uh, specifically Philip Seymour Hoffman's Rachel McAdams and Willem Dafoe's. I am not saying they did a bad job. I'm not saying these are terrible things. Um, clearly, I'm sure dialect coaches were involved and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you could tell that different accents, you know, because people who are from different parts of Germany are going to sound different and have different accents than people who are from, you know, just as people who are from New York do not sound like people who are from uh, uh, Georgia, who do not sound like people who are from Ohio. So it's the same thing at play here with these different kinds of people, especially in regards to whether or not they're, uh, you know, German or British or what have you. But... I just, I, I didn't buy it. Um, maybe they're just too well known. Maybe for me personally, maybe they, it, but it just did not ring true with me. And it was very hard for me to get over that for the, probably the first 30, 35 minutes of the movie. Um, I clearly eventually did get over it because the movie is, you know, just about two hours long and it's phenomenal. Um, but I just could not abide the accents. So that being said, 4.25. Just an outstanding movie. Really, really good. Really enjoyed it. But for me, the accents didn't cut it. What do you got there, Tim? Yeah, you know what? The accents really threw me off for a while as well. Because a lot of preparation went into this movie. And you can tell based on the accents and, and just the really good acting. I mean, I love seeing, uh, I was, I was actually surprised to see William Defoe as much in this movie as we did because William Defoe is kind of known. Well, I guess I kind of think of William Defoe as somebody that either he has a really big part of a movie in a movie, or he just kind of like pops up in small little cameos uh, throughout a film. But no, I mean, he plays a really solid character, as well as Rachel McAdams, and Philip Seymour Hoffman was a lot of fun to watch as well. And people are saying that this is actually a really good send-off for Philip Seymour Hoffman because of how much he actually put into the role. And I gotta say, if you close your eyes, if you listen to these people's accents, you would have thought that they were authentic but I think it was also because that in particular is why I got a little distracted kind of throughout the entire movie because you have Philip Seymour Hoffman, he has an accent. You have Rachel McAdams, who has an accent. You have William Defoe who has an accent. And they all in real life have American English-speaking accents. And so then I kind of started wondering if you replaced Rachel McAdams with somebody else. If that would have been, if that would have made things better, or if you would have uh, replaced Rachel McAdams and William Defoe, would that have made things better? And you know, I don't know because I thought out of everybody, William Defoe's accent fit his face. You know, I don't know because I, I think I always thought William Defoe was a European man, and he's not. And so I guess in a way it just it just fits him because also because William Defoe is awesome and he can pull off I think any accent in the book. But also, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm, I, we're all used to him playing uh, an American. And unlike with uh, the other Jean Le Carre films, for example, uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Gary Oldman, he plays, uh, is it Smiley? I think it's Smiley. Even Gary Oldman, who is a British actor, he's playing a British character, he finds a way to mask himself to fully become the character, or he finds a way physically to become the character. 
And I think with Philip Seymour Hoffman, he kind of needed to do the same thing. He needed to do something physically to take on his particular character of Gunther. Instead of having the different accent and smoking a lot and drinking a lot. In most of his movies, he smokes and drinks a lot. But as I say that, and as I kept thinking about, my, like, what else could Philip Seymour Hoffman, what else could he have done to have made his character better? I then remember Capote. He played Truman Capote in Capote, and everybody complained about his accent, but I loved it. I thought he was Capote. And I think at that time, I was saying, like, I was comparing the real Capote to him, and I thought, well, they sound, I mean, he did a real good job as portraying somebody else. And it is unfair for me to not like his portrayal of Gunther in A Most Wanted Man because I don't have anything to compare that to. It is not based on a real character. And so then that got me thinking about other performances where uh, famous people played uh, other famous people in biopics and whatnot. And I realized the same rules kind of apply. It shouldn't matter that they're playing a different character. It should be about how how they created that character and what they did to create that character and if it was believable or not. And again, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, like I said earlier, if you can close your, if you close your eyes with all of them, you can hear that accent done really, really well. And it sounds authentic. So it's not right for me to judge the look upon the accent because really anybody can have any accent and look whatever. I could be French and look the same. Though that'd be kind of scary, I guess. I don't know. But anyways, after a while, I, I convinced myself that, and it didn't bother me as much. But kind of like Matt, it took me about 30 minutes, 45 minutes to really fully get into this movie. And the great thing about Jean Le Carre, uh books is that they make really good, subtle thrillers. He worked on The Tailor of Panama. He did The Constant Gardener. And as I mentioned before, he did Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which was released in 2011. And Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy very much has the same kind of pacing as A Most Wanted Man. Both movies have great cinematography, but it's a little, it's it's subtle. It's subtle storytelling. It's about characters. And the movie itself is not about the story, but it's about character progression. And so it takes not just one view to maybe fully appreciate it, but maybe even two viewings to fully appreciate it, because it can take you a little while to kind of get the proper footing or to, you know, the inner workings of it and whatnot. I did enjoy this movie. I do like it. Uh, however, I give this one four out of five stars. I just didn't think it was the story itself or even the direction itself was as strong as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy was. Though there are similarities, I just think one was done better than the other. So, but still, it's a really good movie. I do highly recommend it. Four out of five. Awesome. Okay, so where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Casting By? Okay, Casting By, 2012 documentary film directed by Tom Donahue. And basically, this is a... This is a look at the history of casting. The people who do the casting in Hollywood. Um, and New York, but by and large, just all of casting. And it has a particular career focus on Marion Doherty who ostensibly became the very first true casting director um, and kind of started the 
um, created the niche that has become casting by that you will see in credits on TV shows and movies when you see casting by. Um, and what it took to create that and the fruits of that labor and kind of where we are today with it. I personally think that this movie is something that has been long overdue for two reasons. One, I think it highlights what it took uh, to create uh, niche in this particular example is not the best word, but unfortunately I think it might be the most apt word. Um, a, an, an environment for women to flourish in Hollywood and flex their creative muscles in a way that despite whoever directed the film and despite whoever ends up producing and financing it, they left their indelible mark on the history of cinema in a very positive way. And it shows what, what it took to do that and where you see that come from. Um, and and it's and it's just remarkable. And you see all of these directors who are like, you know, yeah, you know what? I made the final decision, but there is no way that decision would have been made if it hadn't been for, you know, Marion, if it hadn't been for, like, for example, with Woody Allen, if it hadn't been for Juliette Taylor. Um, and all these people who are like, you know, sure, the director did a fantastic job. Sure, these actors were amazing. But how do you think these actors showed up in the first place? You hear the stories from John Voight and how he ended up doing all of this amazing work and how he ended up working with Dustin Hoffman. You hear about Dustin Hoffman, his work in The Graduate. You see this stuff with Robert Redford uh, and Paul Newman and, and kind of just how it exploded one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. And all these amazing actors and actresses and all these iconic directors, all because, and all back, basically back down to this woman. So it is truly fascinating, and it's truly a great story, and you should watch this film. The only drawback I have, and it is a full-star drawback for me, is despite this being a 2012 documentary, its narrative flow feels about 10 years old. It, I felt like I was watching a kind of Discovery Channel, a kind of A&E documentary biography if you will biography episode from like 2002 2003 um it kind of graded on me throughout the entire experience but that is not to say that it was still not a worthy experience to have this is a great story and is a an especially triumphant tale of a one woman basically Creating a swath, not just cutting a path, creating a swath, an opening for so many people and giving a creative vision to women in Hollywood overall and a very sorely needed one as well. So four stars for me on Casting By. Yeah, this is a very interesting documentary and it's something that should have been told 
or I guess I should say that it's it's surprising that something like this hasn't been uh, done before or even covered before in documentary format, because this documentary puts a lot of things in perspective, not just by how uh, some of the casting directors have been overlooked, but especially kind of the craziness of the Hollywood uh, system itself over the years, the rise of the Hollywood system, and I guess even the decline of the Hollywood system today. Because casting directors play an important part of, uh, of creating great movies, as what you'll find out uh, in, in the movie, or even as what Matt was talking about, how Marion helped Dustin Hoffman become Dustin Hoffman in Hollywood, and he, she helped Midnight Cowboy. Um, Voight? Yes. She helped John Voight. She gave John Voight two chances to become an actor, and the first chance he failed miserably, and then yet she was still there to help him out because she saw something Casting directors are supposed to have that intuition. They're supposed to have that special relationship with the director, which I guess is also on par with uh, with the great editors because during pre-production, directors spend a lot of time with the casting directors trying to figure out the talent, you know, the, the great people that you're going to have in your movie. And then during post-production, the director spends a lot of time with the editors, which really pulls the movie itself all together. And yet the movie raises the funny fact that editors get a ton of credit in the 50s and all through the 60s and whatnot. They had a credit. In the credits, (laughs) they were mentioned, but yet casting directors, which are on par with the great editors, had no recognition whatsoever. And a lot of it had to do with that many people saw casting directors as secretaries, which is kind of sad. I mean, because that's also kind of a sexist thing as well, because a lot of women have become casting directors over the years. I mean, luckily, things have gotten a little better with crediting casting directors nowadays, but also casting directors are still being pushed aside by many productions, uh, other than like Martin Scorsese or, uh, or you know, those interviewed in the documentary, Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, Clint Eastwood. I mean, they have all used the same casting directors that they have used for most of their films. Even Martin Scorsese used Marion for some of his older films, which is pretty cool. And believe it or not, even today, the casting director is the only main credit in, a, in, in the movie's credit that is not nominated for an Academy Award. And that's just crazy. And that's what I mean by this movie puts a lot of things into perspective because it does go into detail of what a casting director does and how much a casting director does influence a film because you need a good casting director, like I said, to bring in the really good talent. And it's just not all about like, oh, you know, you're a good actor. You have to know what the director wants. You have to have, like I said before, the intuition of who belongs where and how they belong within that film or that TV show or whatever. And leading up to Marion, it talks about how how the real actors, how she got her start in New York City, where she was casting where she was casting a lot of theater and doing a lot of kind of like variety soap opera type TV show, not a soap opera. I forgot what uh, what it was called, but it was a uh, it was a TV show where in early TV broadcasting, where they would take plays and create one hour, hour television shows out of them. 
as in taking a full-length play and cutting it down to an hour and then having a new one virtually every week. And actually, that's how a lot of movie stars got their starts, which is kind of cool. That's where John Voight, that's where John Voight flopped. Well, actually, no, no, he did another cop TV show later on. But that's where Marion got her start. And eventually, she made her way to Hollywood and completely changed casting. She became a thing without a credit. She was the reason great movies were made. And over time, which this goes back to the decline of the uh, studio system, you know, nowadays studios are controlling the casting. They make a reference to the uh, Michael Bay's Transformer movies where they want Victoria's Secret models to act. It's not about the acting, which she was good about finding the acting that works for a movie. They just want the looks. It's all about the, the package itself, not what is inside the package, for example. Uh, so it's fascinating. It covers a lot of ground and it puts a lot of things into perspective. And on top of that, you have fantastic stories. Some sad, but mostly are enthralling that you want to go back and just watch it again. However, I do agree this movie at times does feel like it kind of, the narrative itself kind of leads you astray. It doesn't stay on its projected track. It kind of goes on and takes you multiple directions it's like whenever they find somebody to interview they start talking about something else and then therefore the documentary follows that train of thought and it takes a it takes a little while for it to get back on track so yeah the, the narrative path is a little skewed as the movie goes on but still it's a great film and i still give it 4.5 out of 5 you got to check it out it's good all right so clearly we're now down to the film Tim has been waiting to talk about. 2015's The Gift, the American psychological thriller film written, produced, and directed by Joel Edgerton. Uh, this was, of course, him making his directorial debut, and it stars Jason Bateman, Rebecca Hall, and Joel Edgerton. Um, all right, so this is a film about a married couple who seem to be living the idyllic life, and they come across an old high school friend, I guess you could say. Acquaintance would probably be a better way to put it. Of Simon's. Simon being played by Jason Bateman. And uh, this is uh, Gordon Gordo Mosley, played by Joel Edgerton. Um, strange things begin to happen after Gordo re-enters Simon and Robin's life. Uh, or at least re-enters Simon's life. And slowly but surely, all of the highs that are being experienced by Simon and his lo lovely wife are slowly colored by revelations of Simon. And yet, is it really Simon, or is it really Gordo? Who? is the true evil. And that's kind of the movie, um, in, a, in a nutshell. And there's a lot of twists and turns, as I always say, shenanigans ensue. Um, but the heart of this movie is basically, what do you really know <laughs> about the person you're closest to? And I found that it's it, it's rather chilling how how people can compartmentalize their lives. I don't want to say that this is kind of a reverse Gone Girl because it's not. 
Um, simply put, it's not quite that dark, but it this is a pretty goddamn dark film. And the only problem for me, uh, and this is a huge personal nitpick on my part, it's not to take away from this man's ability, but it was the casting of Jason Bateman. Um, I don't know if how many of you know this, but Jason Bateman kind of played a similar character to this when he was a kid on a television show called Silver Spoons. Now, I I'm an old cat, you know, and I this was this was a live action TV show featuring the likes of the young Ricky Schroeder, um, who now goes by Rick Schroeder, of course. Um, maybe some of the younger kids will remember him from his stints on uh, NYPD Blue and whatnot in the very late nineties. Um, and it was just really, really hard for me personally to watch this movie with Jason Bateman in this role. It's not that he does a bad job. I swear to God, it's not. It's just, this is all I could see. Um, and I couldn't let it go. Like literally, I kind of wanted Joel Edgerton to recast his own role of Gordo as Rick Schroeder, just so that I could relive this twisted fantasy in my head. The acting is really good. The pacing overall, I felt, is a little wonky at the end when they're trying to get the payoffs for all of the buildups. But it's still a very good film. But I just personally feel like the role of Simon was miscast in Jason Bateman. Although it is nice to see some uh, stretching of the legs, as it were, um, for Jason Bateman as an actor. This is totally against type for him, and I I think he did a a decent job. I just personally, I couldn't see past um, my own uh, youth, as it were. So at the end of the day, I'm going to give this one 3.75. I definitely would recommend you see it, um, but aside from some pacing issues at the end and the casting of Jason Bateman, I think you'll enjoy it. So, what do you think, Tim? Was it was it all you were waiting for? I swear to fucking God, Matt, I hope we, like, argue or something for the next three episodes, because I'm sick and fucking tired of us being, oh, we're half a star apart, we're a quarter of, oh... We rated the movie the same. It's getting boring, dude. What the hell? 3.75 for this movie as well. I'll just say it. Goddamn. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, do, I will say that uh, I commend Joel Edgerton for making a, uh, a, a good movie, a really good movie, with some, I don't want to say serious problems, but definite problems with its pacing. I really liked what they did to differ, or I guess not necessarily differ itself, but try to hide itself via the trailer of what this movie actually is about. Um, Because in the trailer, it leads you to believe that this is a psychological suspense thriller, you know, or even it could even have been like a, a home invasion type of thriller. But it's really not. It's something definitely a little bit darker and a little bit more twisted. However, the premise is good in everything, and I really like the idea and how they went about doing the movie, and I liked how everything kind of came together and all, and there were some great scenes, and I thought Jason Bateman was perfectly cast because he he can play that 
assholey smartass so damn well. And uh, it's always fun seeing Joel Edgerton in, doing, in something really good, let alone seeing him write and direct something super successful. But I do feel like that a movie like this, as in a movie that's twisty or turny, a movie that relies on a major reveal either needs to keep the pacing and the intrigue going throughout the film, or it just needs to stop at the 90-minute mark, as in the movie just needs to be like 85 minutes with three minutes of credits. Because it's kind of a bummer when you start to prematurely figure things out before the beat actually happens. And once you do that with this movie, because again, I really liked how, uh, how everything kind of fell together, you really don't get all... I don't want to say emotional, but you you know you really don't fall in the motion of all the emotions with the character. And by the end of the movie, you start really not caring about the characters themselves as much as you probably should. Um, maybe not necessarily caring about them, but maybe even relating to them in some way. But it's important to keep that intrigue and that pace going so you don't have time to guess what could happen. So again, keep the intrigue going, or maybe keep the movie down to 90-ish minutes. However, I still give this movie 3.75 out of 5, and Joel Edgerton, congrats, man. You did a good job for a first-time writer and director. Awesome. All right. Well, then that does bring us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Cop Car and 71, both of which are VOD. And, of course, our third movie will be Being Flynn, which is available on Netflix. So, I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are still the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can send, you can also follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can get aboard that uh, information superhighway. Track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire and of course you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week this is Matt saying that thanks to Oliver Stone I get to say this never underestimate the power of jealousy and the power of envy to destroy. Never underestimate that. And this is Tim. Take care guys and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.